Thank you, Lord, as always, for the grace that you've given us to study your word. I say it, Father, with every prayer because it's always on my heart. I thank you, Father, that uh, you have blessed me with the ability to sit and study and prepare and teach and to make my living at doing this. And what a crazy, uh, wonderful way that is to serve you. And I thank you, Lord, for that. And I thank you that you bring an audience who cares to hear what what you say in your word and that you uh, let men like me serve you in that regard. We thank you, Father, that, uh, that this is how we come to know you in a continual way, opening up a book that is with us at all times and, and each time yet it surprises us and delights us. And we thank you, Father, for that. And Lord, uh, we now know that in the book that we're studying, we're moving ahead to things that are future. We're looking ahead to, Father, to things that you have planned for your people and for us as well. And these things delight us, Father, as uh, you showed us in Revelation and in Daniel. They're sweet in our mouth. But, Father, you also showed us that they have a bitterness to them, that we have to remember that the days are short and difficult times are coming, as they must, in bringing our age to its appointed end. And so, Father, as we study and as we delight in these things and as we look forward to what you have in store for us, Father, please give us also a sense of urgency and a sense of of desire for those who are not yet among yours. And uh, our heart, Father, wouldn't be directed solely to our own benefits and, and joys that are coming, but also, Father, to the opportunity to, to reach others for the same thing. And as we study, Father, enlighten us. Show us the truth here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We are now ready to go into that long-anticipated second half or second part of the book of Ezekiel. And we're going to start studying now prophecies that concern the future glory, the future blessings for the nation of Israel, for God's people, Israel. This is probably a welcome change for most of you, because if you've been here, at least since we started here, maybe even from the very beginning of the book, chapters 1 through 32, you'll know that was a almost endless set of oracles on judgment, and it just kept coming and coming. But in those chapters, the Lord sets up something very important that we then see if you will, a resolution on in the second half of this book. He told the nation of Israel that they and their city were on the verge of complete destruction as a result of their sin. They were going to see their city fall, their walls fall, the temple fall, their leadership destroyed, the people exiled. The whole of it would be overwhelming and it would last for generations. And then at the end of all of that, the Lord, as you remember, spoke to Israel's enemies and said they too had judgment coming. So it was just this endless stream of judgment. Now we've come through all that. And at this point in the book, the Lord is ready to show Israel better things await them in the future. Now remember, the calamity that Israel has just experienced in Ezekiel's day came as a result of the Mosaic Covenant. That is, in that covenant, the Lord gave Israel a law, and with that law came strict requirements. And among those requirements were harsh penalties if they would disobey what God had put before them. And the nation agreed to those terms of their own volition. They entered into a parity covenant in which both sides agreed that they would be bound by the terms. And all the Lord did is hold them accountable to the very terms that they agreed to. That's all he's done. But before the Lord gave that covenant to his people through Moses, he had also given them previously another covenant, one through Abraham. And the Abrahamic covenant, unlike the Mosaic Covenant, promised Abraham's descendants only blessings. 
In fact, unlike the Mosaic Covenant, it didn't have any conditions. It didn't put any demands on the other party, on the party of Israel or Abraham's descendants. God asked absolutely nothing of Abraham, absolutely nothing of his descendants. So that means that the promises of the Abrahamic Covenant, which preceded the Old Covenant, come to pass regardless of what Abraham or any of his descendants ever do. They just are going to happen, period based on God's faithfulness alone. So in a sense, you can say that the prophecies that we've studied in the first part of Ezekiel are related to the Mosaic Covenant in that the judgments that are coming upon Israel are the result of that covenant. Not exclusively, but that's a good general rule. And at the same time then, the promises that we're now going to study in the second part of the book of Ezekiel are themselves related to the Abrahamic Covenant because here again, they're coming irregardless of what Israel has done or will do. So, despite the magnitude of Israel's sin, which then precipitated what we've studied in the judgments, nevertheless, now we get to see the magnitude of the Lord's grace to his people, which comes without regard to their behavior. Okay, that's, a, that's sort of the two sides of this book. Now, as I mentioned last week, the story of, of restoration or redemption, which is now where we're headed, comes a bit slowly at first. Not, not real slowly, but what I'm saying is you don't start on page one of, of the second part here with you know, walking into the kingdom. That's not exactly how the book presents it. Just as we saw the judgment sort of taking a step down, step down, step down approach until we hit the the bottom, as it were, in the last few chapters. Well, we have to step back out of that before we hear the highlights. So the story moves in stages, and they roughly correspond to the stages of descent that we saw in the first part of the book. So let me just give you a rough outline. In a future week, I may print this up and give it to you in a little more formal way if you want it. But for now, it's not that hard to understand. So you have the first half of the book showing this descent in which God is taking judgments at the people and the nation in all these incremental ways, all these various aspects of their existence being knocked down. Um, the Where we pick up now in chapter 33 is the beginning of a restoration process in which all the things he knocked down gets restored in the same order, one at a time. To give you a sense of where we are in time, the first half of the chapter we start tonight, chapter 33, is actually a continuation of the prophecy that started in chapter 32, the one we studied last week. That's dated to March of 585 B.C. And then in the middle of this chapter tonight, chapter 33, we begin the 13th prophecy. If you remember back to the very beginning of this book, there are 14 prophecies in the book of Ezekiel. We're starting the 13th here. That will run us all the way until chapter 39. Then starting in chapter 40 through the end of the book in 48, you get the last, the 14th dated prophecy. All right, so that's the dating of it. Here's the structure, the laddering structure I just referred to. So, uh, in part one, you saw this systematic tearing down of the nation of Israel. He started by taking aim at Ezekiel himself. And this will test your memory if you've listened all the way from chapter one. At, At the outset of Ezekiel, God speaks directly to Ezekiel and warns him about the awesome responsibility of being a prophet. And then he moves from there to talking to the people about the necessity of listening to God's word. So... It's no surprise then as we open up in chapter 33 and we begin or the second part of the book, we're going to see an opening statement to the prophet about the importance of being faithful and an opening statement to the people about the need to listen to the prophecy. Same basic pattern again. And then in part one, the Lord told the people that their leaders were corrupt. And because they had corrupt leadership, it had drawn Israel into a corrupt state of heart. Part two, the first thing that gets restored, what do you think it's going to be? Good leadership. Good leadership. And in part one, God then moved on and said Israel would lose access to the blessings of the covenant, including their prosperity, their security, and their land, which are the three aspects of the Abrahamic covenant that they had been given. In part two, he tells Israel that he will now restore those things in kind. 
Following that, you see in part one, the nation vacated. You see the city destroyed. You see the people scattered. Uh, those were the judgments we studied. So what do you think is happening in part two? You're going to see the people regathered. You're going to see the city rebuilt. You're going to see all these other things coming one at a time. The last thing we studied in part one was Israel falling to a foreign enemy. That is the final battle, the city being destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And in the last part of this opening section, we're going to see the nation defended against two enemies that invade and try to attack. All right, so that's how the first half of the second part conclude in chapter 39. Okay? From there, chapter 40 and, and onward, it's nothing but a focus on the kingdom temple, which is a very technical study, which we'll see when we get there. Again, I'll give you a more thorough view of that on, on a handout or something in a future day, but for now, that's just a, a good overview. Let's begin the journey. We see the Lord now preparing the prophet and the people. We'll go through this relatively quickly because it's paralleling what we studied at the beginning of the book, but we'll just remember a few important things along the way. Verse 1 of chapter 33. He says, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the sons of your people and say to them, If I bring a sword upon the land, and the people of the land take one man from among them and make him their watchman, and he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows on the trumpet and warns the people, then he who hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, and a sword comes and takes him away, and his blood will be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, but he did not take warning. His blood will be on himself. But had he taken warning, he would have delivered his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet and the people are not warned, and a sword comes and takes a person from them, well, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from the watchman's hand. Now, as for you, son of man, I have appointed you a watchman for the house of Israel. So you will hear a message from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, Oh, wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, well, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from your hand. But if you, on your part, warn a wicked man to turn away from his way, and he does not turn away from his way, well, he will die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your life. All right, we'll pause. If you studied in the early chapters of this book, you'll remember some of this language. It's almost identical to what he said back in chapters 2 and 3. And as we studied back then, what God has said is that my prophet is like a watchman. Remember, a watchman is that sentinel who stands guard for a city walking around the walls, and he sees something coming in the distance, an army, a sword, as the Lord says. And his job is not to go get a sword and fight, his job is to stand up there and say, Yea, verily, something's coming. And that's his job. That's it. Done. Success. It's the responsibility of the people being warned to do something with that warning. And in verses 4 and 5, the Lord says to Ezekiel, If the people hear but don't heed, well, then they're going to suffer, but that fate is not on you. You did your job. Uh, you've obeyed. You've given the message. That's the mission of a prophet, in, certainly in Ezekiel's case, to open his mouth, to say what he's told. I would go a step further and say I think it's also the responsibility of a teacher, uh, which is why James, I think, gives the warning that teachers ought to be careful about taking on that responsibility because, as the Lord says here, if you're not good in the watchman role and others fall because of your misdeeds, their blood's on you, so to speak. Their penalty is their own for their own sin's sake, but what the Lord is saying is, you stumble them, in a sense, because you didn't give them the fair warning I asked. And that's what he says in verses 8 and 9. He says, if he's given a word, but Ezekiel doesn't share it accurately, he's going to be held accountable. I love the fact that the book opens with that. Both halves of it open with that, because it, it shows us that what Ezekiel was probably being given to do here, both in the first half, even in the second half at times, is something he probably didn't want to do in all cases. That what he was going to deliver was a message people didn't like to hear. 
If you don't like to tell people things that they won't want to hear, you should not get into ministry at any level. Because people are inherently sinful, their lives are corrupt and filled with sin, even believers, and the Bible stands to correct that over and over and over again for the whole time they live on earth. And if you can't get comfortable with the idea that in love and in kind ways, yes, but still directly telling them, the Bible says this, you're doing that, fix it, then you're not going to be good in ministry because you're going to fall to the problem that God outlined here for Ezekiel, which is you're in a sense sharing in their sin by withholding the truth I gave you to share. I had a gentleman walk up to me after service on Saturday. You remember the stern warning I gave everyone about baptism, that loving way I said, get baptized or else? And here's a gentleman who's, who's retired age, basically, coming up and saying, well, I was told by a pastor in my earlier days that because I was in a church at the time that practiced infant baptism, that that was acceptable and I could just live with that as my baptism because that was the policy of that church. And I said, well, I don't know where they came up with that, but I'm here to tell you, you owe God a baptism and we need to do it, right? Well, he was okay with that, but before I told him, I didn't know if he'd be okay with that. And I'm not saying I should be given you know, praise for saying what's obvious. What I'm saying, though, is if any part of me was wondering... Like, for example, what if this guy would have been a big donor to the church? Or what if he was a small group leader or, God forbid, an elder or something, right? What am I supposed to say? Ooh, well, in this case, maybe I should tell him something different, right? No, no. And that's the point. If you have a discomfort in telling people the truth, don't get into this line of work. Because it's for your own best interest that you wouldn't. We need to tell people the truth. Now, we do it nicely. But sometimes there's no nice way to deliver a piece of news that they won't like. You just throw it out there. It's between them and God. And this is the same thing the Lord has told him at the beginning of this message. He's telling them here again. All right, now the Lord turns to the people and reminds them of their responsibility. Verse 10. He says, Now as for you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus you have spoken, saying, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we are rotting away in them. How can we survive then? Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked but rather that the wicked turn away from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? And you, son of man, say to your fellow citizens, the righteousness of a righteous man will not deliver him in the day of his transgression. And as for the wickedness of the wicked, he will not stumble because of it in the day when he turns from his wickedness. Whereas a righteous man will not be able to live by his righteousness on the day when he commits sin. When I say to the righteous, he will surely live, and he so trusts in his righteousness that he commits iniquity, none of his righteous deeds will be remembered. But in that same iniquity of which he has committed, he will die. But when I say to the wicked, you will surely die, and he turns from his sin and practices justice and righteousness. If a wicked man restores a pledge, pays back what he has taken by robbery, walks by his statutes, which ensure life without committing iniquity, well, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of his sins that he has committed will be remembered against him. He has practiced justice and righteousness. He will surely live. Yet your fellow citizens say, The way of the Lord is not right, when it is their own way that is not right. When the righteous turn from his righteousness and commits iniquity, then he shall die in it. But when the wicked turns from his wickedness and practices justice and righteousness, he will live by them. Yet you say, The way of the Lord is not right. O house of Israel, I will judge each of you according to his ways. Here again, very similar to what started in the beginning of the book. Now, you may remember from that earlier study that the context here is not salvation. This is behavior under the law. This is how they will be judged by that law. 
We're not talking about salvation here at all. This, so in your mind, if you're thinking, boy, he's talking about how you get saved, just reset, and let's come back to the, to the point of the chapter, which is, what will happen to you if you disobey God under the law? If you're a person who disobeys the law, what is the penalty for disobeying the law? Death. That's all God is pointing out here. And if somebody lived against the law and for whatever reason had not been penalized to that point, because perhaps, as we saw earlier, Israel was so corrupt, they weren't even applying the law. They weren't even holding people accountable to the law. Then if God decides in his justice to bring judgment against his own people for their failure to keep the law, which is what he has just done in the case of Israel, what he's pointing out to them is, it's not about your track record, it's about where your heart is at the moment of judgment. When it comes to the law. Now we're not talking about grace, we're talking about law. So at the point where God decides he's going to bring judgment, and he says, Yea, verily, here comes the sword because of your sins under the old covenant. And the people who hear that say, I repent, Lord, I'm, I don't want to do this anymore, and I'll come under your law again. And they do the necessary sacrifices, and they do what God requires. Well, then God says, I'll let them live. Because that's how the law worked. The law always held you accountable in moments. Right? It was only about a moment. You were guilty at the moment that you were judged. And then if you repented and if the law allowed for a way out, then you got that way out. On the other hand, if you were righteous for 99 years of your life and then you violated the law on your 100th year and did not repent, you died then because you violated the law. That's all he was saying. The law acts as a merciless judge, which is why you do not want to be under law. And in its mercilessness, it was blind to your past. You got no credit for good work before the one that got you in trouble. No different than if you tell the police... You know, this is the first time I've ever been caught speeding. Give me a break. And he'd probably write you a ticket for lying. If there was one, right? The point is, the Lord simply reminding his people here again, same thing he said before, that they have reason for hope, they have reason to obey, in contrast to the two excuses that you see given at the outset of this chapter. The Lord says, I have absolutely no pleasure in holding you accountable. I will because I'm perfect in my justice, as, as he might have said. But he doesn't take pleasure in it. And he says, those who would say to themselves, as he says in verse 10, Oh, our transgressions and our sins are upon us. We're rotting away. How can we survive? That's somebody who's saying, essentially, because I have done so much wrong up to this point, I have no hope for God's mercy under the current circumstances, so why bother trying? I might as well just not bother repenting because I'm too far gone. And that person when they stop to consider returning to the Lord, when they stop to consider the possibility of repentance, when they hear the Lord saying judgment's coming, the enemy sort of reinforces that guilt and reinforces that thinking that says I'm beyond reach, which leads to further motivation to sin, and as a result they don't take opportunity to repent, telling themselves there was no opportunity at all. Which is why at the end of this the Lord says, you tell me my ways aren't right, I'm telling you this works exactly the way justice should work. Your ways are the ones that are not right. So that's one way in which people continue in rebellion telling themselves that they have no way to return to God, and so they don't bother trying. Right Now, in the age of grace, it's even more the case that that's a wrong way to think. Right, But even under law, that, that kind of human thought existed, that said, I've gone too far, I can't come back. The Lord says, that's not true. You can sin your whole life, and then the moment of repentance before the day of judgment, you'll be excused from that judgment. Under the law, keep in mind. Now, we're not saying they're going to heaven. We're saying under the law, they keep their physical life a day longer. All right? Now, there was a person at the other end of the spectrum, though, and it's kind of interesting. They're coming to the same conclusion for exactly opposite reasons. The other person who's self-righteous doesn't recognize their own sin. And as a result, they see no need for repentance. So they're grading themselves on the curve. They're giving themselves credit for past effort. 
So they live in an upright fashion. They keep the rituals of religion without understanding their own place in it. They've kind of worked their problem for years and years. And then toward the end, they get lazy and decide they're not going to keep the law quite as much. Maybe it's because no one else is. Maybe it's because they've seen the rest of the nation go south. And they decide, well, what's the point anymore? And they tell themselves, even though I'm now sinning, my track record will keep me out of trouble. This is the great scale in the sky mentality that many people live under, right? And in verse 13, the Lord says, If that righteous person hears that he will live and yet goes on to commit sin, those good deeds aren't going to save him. That is, from the penalty of death under the law. All right. So the point is, we might complain now, it's not worth our effort to try because we're too far gone, or we say we don't need to try because we have too much good to already come our way. Either way, you're going to be caught off guard when God has to do what he does in judgment. All right? With that, that's a very fast summary because we've done this in the past in this book and because I don't want to take too long here, there's newer things coming. So with that, let's move into the 13th dated prophecy, the one that begins midway in this chapter. It's in verse 21. And it starts with the Lord reminding Ezekiel of his role and his responsibility, having just now reminded him of the fact that he has a role to watch and speak and then he has a role, the people have a role to listen and heed. Verse 21, he says, Now in the twelfth year of our exile... On the fifth of the tenth month, the refugees from Jerusalem came to me, saying, The city has been taken. Now the hand of the Lord had been upon me in the evening before the refugees came, and he opened my mouth at the time that they came to me in the morning, so my mouth was open and I was no longer speechless. And then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, they who live in these waste places in the land of Israel are saying, Abraham was only one, and yet he possessed the land. So to us, who are many, the land has been given as a possession. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord God, You eat meat with the blood in it. Lift up your eyes to your idols as you shed blood. Should you then possess the land? You rely on your sword. You commit abominations, and each of you defiles his neighbor's wife. Should you then possess the land? Thus you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, As I live, surely those who are in the waste places will fall by the sword, and whoever is in the open field I will give to the beasts to be devoured, and those who are in the strongholds and in the caves will die of pestilence. I will make the land a desolation and a waste, and the pride of her power will cease, and the mountains of Israel will be desolate so that no one will pass through. Then they will know I am the Lord, when I make the land a desolation and a waste because of all their abominations which they have committed. Now, you may remember the last prophecy of the judgment that came as Nebuchadnezzar attacks the city, the very last judgment, before we got into all the judgments against the enemies of Israel. The last one spoken against the city was chapter 24. Okay, And as that prophecy ended, you may remember I said that Ezekiel was told at that time he would now remain mute until the city was taken. All right. So now you hear that as the exiles come back into the city, the first ragtag group of refugees who've come back out of the battle, and they come into the exile community in, by the river Kebar up in, in Babylon, they're finally making it there. They tell everyone, our city has been taken. That's the first time the news has now hit the exiles. On that very day, the Lord, it says, his hand comes upon Israel, and Ezekiel's silence comes to an end. He's able to speak again now. And that was January 19th, 585 B.C. And that's the day that word reached the exiles that everything Ezekiel had said was going to happen has happened. And the siege of that city began on the 10th day of the 10th month in the 9th year of King Zedekiah's rule. 10 is the number of testimony. 9 is the number of judgment. So you have a double testimony of God's judgment in the numerology of that date. 
Now, after months later, you have the news reaching the exiles. In verse 22, the Lord says, okay, time to speak again. Verse 24, the Lord repeats what is being said by the few living Jews that are still in the land. And you're saying, well, I thought there wouldn't be any left in the land. Well, not exactly, because after the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and left, there were a scattering of Jews. You know, these were the ones who hid from Babylon in the caves, or they they lived in isolation out in the fields or on the mountainsides and weren't in the city at the time. So they escaped death, they escaped exile. They're not many of them. You know, they're, they're kind of just refugees here and there in the land. And the Lord says those Jews took a look at their circumstances after Babylon left with all the rest of the Jews, and they concluded that God had appointed them as the remnant in the land. And they assumed, we're here to restart the nation, that we're here to be like Abraham. And they said in verse 24 that Abraham was only one person, and yet God told him to possess the lamb. We're more than one, so certainly we can do the same. And so they concluded, we'll be like Abraham, not mighty in number, but the Lord's working through us, he'll give us the land again. That self-deception overlooked two big differences between them and Abraham. First, Abraham was told to dwell in the land by God. These people have been told by their prophets that God wants them out of the land. And secondly, God promised Abraham that he and his descendants would possess that land, yes, but in the future, in a future kingdom. He did not say that you would possess this land in your own lifetime, which is why Abraham lived as a wanderer, because he knew that. So these refugees are telling themselves that God wanted them to possess the land like Abraham, which is a misuse of Abraham's story. That's not actually what God told Abraham. So now what the Lord tells the exiles is they would not expect to see those who have been left behind succeed in their folly. He reminds them that these refugees are just as ungodly as the rest of Israel was, which is why the whole thing happened in the first place. Therefore, they're not getting God's mercy. They're not going to remain in the land And because they refused to go into exile, remember the earlier prophecies? What was Israel told? If you did not submit to Babylon and if you did not go into exile, what was the penalty? They would die. You Remember he says, if you submit to Nebuchadnezzar, you'll have your own life as your booty. He phrased it that way. All right, well, these people didn't submit to Nebuchadnezzar. They didn't go into exile. They've hidden. And so the Lord says in verse 27, notice, all who remain... And he lists three general regions of the land. Waste places. That would mean trying to live on the rubble of the old city or in the fields, or in the caves, they're all dying, one way or another. So in other words, in the course of events, the Lord is going to sovereignly ensure that these people die, one at a time, over some period of time, doesn't matter, but at the end of the day, they're not going to have any relatives in the land, they're not going to leave behind any posterity, they're just going to all be gone in time, until His word is fulfilled, and the land is free of the Jews as He promised it would be. Okay. Then the Lord tells Ezekiel that the group in exile isn't much better than them. Now, we're getting to the to good stuff. This is just a kind of summary. Remember, we said we have to climb out of the, the depths of the judgment. What the Lord is doing here is he's sort of cleaning up a little loose ends before he moves into the glory. Verse 30, he says, But as for you, son of man, your fellow citizens who talk about you by the walls and in the doorways of the houses, speak to one another, each to his brother, saying, Come now and hear what the message is which comes forth from the Lord. They come to you as people come. And sit before you as my people, and hear your words. But they do not do them. For they do the lustful desires expressed by their mouth, and their heart goes after their gain. Behold, you are to them like a sensual song by one who has a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear your words, but they do not practice them. So when it comes to pass, as surely it will, then they will know that a prophet has been in their midst. So 
This is a bit of a warning to Ezekiel as well for what's coming, because keep in mind, we know what's happening in the next half of this book, right? Pretty amazing things are about to be spoken. And if what he said in the first half of this book did not tickle their ears and they did not appreciate very much, well, after the exiles come back up from Babylon, they start to understand that this guy knows what he's talking about. Moreover, what he's about to start telling them are things that they're going to enjoy hearing. Right, And after listening to him and seeing these prophecies come to pass, and what will start to come now are much more pleasant things, the Lord warns the prophet, hold on, boy. Don't start to think that their attitude has changed. Don't let their interest in your message confuse you as to the state of their heart. He says they're going to say nice things about you. In public arenas, they're going to meet, and they're going to talk, and they're going to say, did you hear? He's talking again. He hasn't talked for almost three years. He's talking again. Let's all go hear him. It's going to be exciting. Let's go see what's new, right? They treat him as a spectacle. He's sort of a sideshow at the circus. And as they come, what Ezekiel needed to understand is they were not listening for reasons of obedience. They were listening for other reasons. They sat before him to hear the word, and yet when they went away, he says they did the same lustful things they'd always been doing. Now what we're learning here, and this is why this is important, we're learning that the generation that has come out of Israel has not turned from their ways, and in fact, until they stand before the Lord in judgment, we just heard, they won't get it. Until they stand before him in judgment, then and only then will they realize that they had been among a prophet. They see Ezekiel like a carnival performer. Mysterious prophecies, sounding like a sensual song, he says. It's exciting. This is somewhat of what I mentioned in my prayer when you hear both Daniel and John in Revelation being told by angels that when they take scrolls and eat them, it's sweet in the mouth, it's bitter in the stomach. The nature of prophecy is such that it excites us, it titillates us, we're wondering what it all means, we kind of get into it. The problem is it, it also calls upon us to do and live differently in light of what we're learning. And it's usually, if not always, something that is very hard to appreciate, hard to embrace. I don't know how many times I've had people say they just don't want to study Revelation because they, they're kind of scared of what's in it. I'm like, isn't that more reason to know what's in it? Right? I mean, you feel better going blindly into something bad? I mean, wouldn't it be better to know more? You know? But that's the nature of how prophecy hits us. For those of us who like studying it, we get all excited about it, and, and I think in some cases... We never get to the point of actually wanting to use it. It's just an interesting intellectual pursuit. And that's not just prophetic texts. You know, people do the same thing with other parts of the Bible. And in this case, what it meant was that, like watching a performance, when it was over, they went away having been entertained, but essentially unchanged. And so what the Lord is revealing to Ezekiel is, the people who are sitting in exile are not going to get any better than they were when they left Israel which is why they're going to sit there for several generations. It's not this generation that goes back into the land, and for the most part, it's not even the next generation. Remember, they're going to be penalized to the third and fourth generation. It's going to take several generations uh, to kind of bleed out all of the rebellion and idolatry so that by the time God is ready to send them back into the land, there's a fresh mind, a fresh heart that comes back in. And the Lord is telling Ezekiel, don't think that you're revealing what you're revealing for their sake. That is, it's not going to be fulfilled in their lifetime. It's not for their purpose, not even for their own redemption. These people don't have the heart to do it. And as a result, the Lord is saying, I'm not impressed with these people and their words. You shouldn't be either. We're not revealing this for the purpose of entertainment. It's speaking to move hearts. These aren't the hearts that are going to be moved. Just be aware of that. You know, I could go off on a little preaching on that myself from the standpoint of someone who teaches, but you, you don't need that. I mean, the point is you're here on a Tuesday night when most people aren't. That's probably a good sign. But there are a lot of people for whom Bible study is its own pursuit and has no end in itself. It's just the knowledge pursuit. It's just the fun. In fact, it's their small group. It's their fellowship. It's their challenging 
you know, little area of, of interest. Um, if somebody's not willing to put it to work, though, it's a waste of time for everybody's sake. And that's why you'll often hear me in the way I preach or in the way I tell people individually, like the baptism example I gave you a while ago. That's why I don't play around with the words. That's why I tell people, do it or don't bother being here. It doesn't make us any better to just talk about it. And because I believe that. I believe if you do what people do with the word most of the time, which is listen, agree, and go home and do nothing, then when you stand before the Lord, I don't think you get a better result for having heard it. I think, in fact, you may be more convicted over the fact that you did nothing with it. So it's better, in some ways, to remain ignorant than to take what God has put in front of us and to do nothing with it. This prophecy serves as a really interesting introduction to the prophecies of restoration because it's saying, I'm about to tell you things that are for future generations, not for this generation. That starts to set our mind on the distances of time we're going to start looking at here. And for the most part, everything at this point forward in the book is talking about events that are still future state for us as well. So... It would seem as though this prophecy was stuck here at the end of 33 as a footnote for those who were left in the land or for those who were going to come back into the land after exile to make sure they understand to look further ahead than their own lifetimes for the fulfillment. So now we move into the first area of restoration. The Lord has torn everything down systematically. He's now going to rebuild it all systematically. And it always starts at the top, right? Good leadership is the starting point for any good work. So we now move into the first area, that is leadership, or as he says here, shepherds. And it begins with a brief reminder of the problems that created the need to tear down, and then he introduces the solution. Verse 1. It says here, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The diseased, you have not healed. The broken, you have not bound up. The scattered, you have not brought back, nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and with severity, you have dominated them. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd, and they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth, and there was no one to search or seek for them. All right, this is the preface. And the principle is something we've studied before. We don't have to beat the horse here, but the, the principle is Israel's corrupt leaders created the problems in the culture over time, and their motivation was self-serving. That The men in general, and we're talking now both kings and priests and civic leaders, elders and the like, they came into their roles and saw it as an opportunity to accumulate comfort and riches at the expense of the people they were there to shepherd. And of course, what I just described fits the pattern of pretty much every civilization in every age in every area of leadership, right? There's people who fit that pattern everywhere because it's human nature. But leading God's people in any capacity is inherently a self-sacrificial role. Inherently. In fact, the shepherd analogy is a really good way to understand what I'm saying, what I mean by self-sacrificial. Because if you think about what a shepherd has to do, they sacrifice a lot to care for the sheep in the way that they have to do their job. Uh, They have to stay outside in weather that a sheep with a big woolly coat on has no problem with, but they're not so comfortable in. You know, the, the shepherd is. They're exposed. They have to move away from their own source of food, which is back in the farmhouse, in order to get the sheep to their source of food which is in the pasture, right? They have to expose themselves to 
thieves and wild animals and other dangers in order to keep the flock safe. They can't spend time on their own interests because they have to care for the demands of the flock 24-7. They sleep with them out in the field. They have to go everywhere they go. They can't sort of check in and check out and come back and the sheep are just where you left them. So self-sacrificial mindset is inherent to shepherding. There's no in-between. If you take shepherding, and I'm talking not just at the, at the level of my role, for example, but at any level. If you take it like a vocation, like I'm on duty 8 to 5 and the rest of the time don't bother me, don't get into this job. It's, it's, it's not how the job works, right? People don't die on schedule. People don't have crises on schedule. People don't only schedule their needs around your hobbies. It's just the job. And it's a joy if you do it with a heart that understands the purpose in it. But my point is that it's that way and it's always been that way. There's never been a place in God's economy for people who sort of served at their own convenience. That's one of the biggest problems with careerism and ministry, in my opinion, is that we've turned it into just another way to earn a living instead of what it truly is, which is a burden, a calling, and a self-sacrificial appointment of God, which doesn't have any kind of vocational comparison. There is nothing else like it. And the same things are generally true for anyone who leads God's people in the sense of the sacrifices they're going to make. They're not going to be able to do what they want. They're not going to earn the money they might have wanted to earn, maybe, or they would not have had the freedom they have in that role. They're not going to have the freedom of their time and their family situation. It's all part of the job. It's what serving means. And in Israel's day, you have shepherds who saw their position of power as an opportunity for wealth and comfort, and they took advantage of the sheep to get it. They consumed them, the Lord says, using the metaphor taking their wool, so to speak. Those who were sick weren't being healed. Those who were broken were not being bound, and on and on. Obviously, you'd have to draw some comparison out from the metaphor to real life, but it wouldn't be that hard. You can see it for yourself. In terms of the analogy, what he's saying is this. The people wandered away from the Lord, like sheep wandering away because they have no shepherd. That led them into harm, into sin, and the leadership did nothing to rescue them. In fact, the leadership took advantage of them. They didn't chase after them. They didn't correct their mistakes. They didn't counsel them. They didn't lead them in a better direction. They manipulated them. They became rich from them. Ultimately, they used them, threw them out, and didn't care about them. They treated them without care or without love. He says they dominated them rather than protecting them. And so without those shepherds, Israel became food for beasts, scattered. And that's a really good description of Israel going through what they've just experienced and into exile. And now the Lord says there's no one to even search for them. This is a really remarkable statement because what it's saying is even at the end of all of this, as they sit in exile, they have no leader. I mean, Zedekiah has been blinded, if you remember from an earlier chapter. The elders all died in in the battle. All the priests died in the battle. That was something we were told would happen. So who's leading Israel? What's really remarkable about this is the survival of the people of Israel under these circumstances is nothing short of a miracle. When you take a group of people and you move them out of their country so that they have no identity in their land, and you put them in a foreign land with no leadership, any anthropologist would tell you that it's only a matter of a generation or less before those people are completely assimilated into wherever they are, and they have no unique identity anymore after that. It happens all over the time in history. Somehow, they remained in a foreign land, isolated and in captivity without leadership, and never lost their identity, which, of course, is evidence of God's power to preserve his people. But it's because it's so remarkable that you see the miracle of it. All right? God leaves them without a leader. Think about this. They have not, since that day, seen leadership reemerge in the nation. And you might think, well, they had King Herod. He wasn't Jewish. They've never had a strong priesthood. They've had men like uh, the Maccabees come along for a period of time. But what we're saying is the people of God have never had this kind of overarching 
shepherding that has carried them through from this point forward. They, they have always been, at some level, without persistent leadership. You know, they get a Ravi in some part of Eastern Europe. They get a rabbi in their local community. They get a, a prime minister in the modern political state. But those people aren't doing what God has said here needs to be done by shepherds. The best they got was a new kingdom for about 100 years when the Maccabees took over. But even then, what the Maccabeans did was try to establish their own version of what was there before, not what God has said he needs instead. And now what we're seeing in verse 7 is the Lord telling his people, I'm going to fix this problem. I'm not going to ask another generation of leadership to come up and try to do what the earlier generations failed to do. He leaves his people essentially led supernaturally without human interaction for generations, in exile and out, in the land and out, holding them together, as it were, across the globe as a unique people, waiting for a future day. Verse 7, he says, Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my flock has become a prey, my flock has even become food for all the beasts of the field for lack of a shepherd. And my shepherds did not search for my flock, but rather the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep. So the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore, but I will deliver my flock from their mouths so that they will not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land, and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the streams and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will feed them in a good pasture, and their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down on good grazing ground and feed in rich pastures on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock, and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, strengthen the sick, but the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. All right, so notice the I, 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 myself, I, myself, okay? We're going to talk about the timing of this in a minute, but I just want you to see, as you see here, he, he never says, I will raise up new leaders. He never says, I will give you to good shepherds. What he says is, I'm done with shepherds. I'm going to take care of you. Now, obviously, what he's doing in the interim is he's taking care of them from heaven, just in the pure sense that they're surviving. They're not obliterated as a people. They're still in existence. That's not the ideal state. That's not where he's headed, but that's the start. And he says, before I raise up a new shepherd, before I take on the role and get this done, I've got to get rid of the corrupt ones. And so verse 10, he says, I'm going to take your corrupt leaders, and here's what I'm going to do to them. Uh, he says, those guys were more concerned with their own care than with your care, so I'm going to oppose them. And, and I think what he's talking about here is both kings and elders and priests, the whole lot. Rather than raising up better leaders, he says, I'm just going to take the job on myself. I'm going to search my own sheep. I'm going to regather my own sheep. I'm going to bring them back to the land. I'm going to take care of them in the land. This is a promise to Israel that he will eventually give them all that they were missing. He says, I'm going to feed them on the mountains of Israel, rich pastures and the like. Now, this is all metaphoric, but the location is not. When he talks about Israel, the land, he's talking about regathering Israel in the land that he's just scattered them from while bringing judgment to those who profited off his people. Now, let's put some timing to this. We know that this prophecy is looking ahead to the thousand-year reign. And we know that because of the internal references in this passage. First of all, 
at Jesus' return, the Bible says that Israel will finally gain the righteous shepherd that serves God's people as intended, which they have not had before that. And you can see that in verse 12 when he says, first of all, that this will happen after a gloomy, cloudy day. You see that? That's a reference to tribulation. How do I know that? Well, because it's an allusion to the seven years of tribulation that precedes the start of the kingdom, which is described in those exact terms elsewhere. For example, in Zephaniah 1.14, talking of tribulation, this is what it says. Zephaniah 1.14, Near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it, the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day. A day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and of thick darkness. That is the reference, okay? And he goes on. A day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. All right, that's a reference to the terrible things that go on in the seven-year tribulation. That seven-year tribulation sits right up against the end of this age and the second coming of Christ. And so as it ends, Christ has returned, and as it comes to, to an end and Christ comes back, the kingdom will start soon after. So when he says back in Ezekiel, I myself will search my sheep and seek them out, he says, I will care for them, I will deliver them, from the places, notice, which they were scattered on a gloomy and cloudy day. So this is about them having been scattered during the time of tribulation. And he says, I will go out after that and I will regather them. So that puts us at a timeline at the end of tribulation. That's our first little clue. All right? Moving from there. Ezekiel also gave us the same description earlier in this book. One verse, two verses just to remind you. In, in chapter 30, uh, in verse 2, he says, Son of man, prophesy, saying, Thus says the Lord God, Wail, alas, for the day is near. Even the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds and a time of doom for the nations. There's that reference to cloud and doom again, okay? Remember, anytime you see the word or the phrase day of the Lord, what is that a reference of? It's always tribulation, all right? Day of the Lord, tribulation. All right, so we're talking here about the Lord promising to finally regather and to finally shepherd his people out of a period of darkness and gloom. All right, that's your first clue. Secondly, notice in verse 11, as we've said already, the Lord keeps saying he will do it in a personal way, not through someone else, not through a human leader. And Isaiah says this about the Lord as he comes back. He says in Isaiah 40, verse 9, he says, Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah... Here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom, and he will gently lead the nursing ewes. Right? So the imagery is intentional. It's designed to be re reinforcing here. Two prophets saying similar things. The Lord is a shepherd coming, collecting the lost sheep, Caring for them in a tender way, that's what we hear said about the Lord's second coming. So, what we're learning is the prophecy that Ezekiel is giving us here in 34, the, the Lord is going to send a shepherd for Israel. We know that has not been fulfilled yet because the context of it is consistent with what we see at the Lord's second coming. All right, This cannot be said to have happened at the Lord's first coming either, for anyone who might think, well, maybe it was fulfilled then. Because if you'll remember in Matthew 9... The Lord looks upon the people and he realizes they're distressed because they're without a shepherd. 
Remember that? That was Matthew. And think about it now. That was Matthew who was Jewish and understood his Jewish audience. That was him obliquely referring back to Ezekiel 34. That was him indicating to the people who read his gospel and knew the Old Testament prophecies that Christ's first coming was not giving fulfillment to Ezekiel 34. That the people were yet still without their shepherd. But they would have it in a day to come. Israel's flock will see their shepherd in the kingdom. Not yet, as it were. Not in the way that he's being promised to to deliver uh, shepherding now. I mean, this is something beyond even what we see now. Furthermore, the Lord says in verse 12, Notice this. He says, at that time, he gathers Israel from all the places where they're scattered. Do you see the word all? should be in your translation. Again, that cannot have been fulfilled yet because the nation of Israel has not yet seen all Israel regathered. And this is true not just in the sense that we haven't seen it yet today. I'm saying it's never happened at all in the past. Israel, when they came back from the captivity in Babylon, that was not all Israel being put back in the land. Just a ragtag group of refugees out of Babylon came back. To say nothing of the, the Jews that were taken by Assyria earlier, or even those who were taken to Babylon, most of them stayed. Most of them did not come back. All right? Ezekiel 34, this is a promise that says there will be a day when the Lord, as shepherd, gathers every single living Jew that's on the earth and puts them back in Israel. Isaiah 11 confirms that. Isaiah 11, 9 speaking of the kingdom, says that they will not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then in that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for all the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand the remnant of his people who will remain, from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, and Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. And he will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel, and he will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. All right, so Isaiah says at the start of the kingdom, you have the root of Jesse, Christ, resting in a glorious place. That's a reference to his throne in Jerusalem. And at that time, it says, the Lord will seek and find all Israel, those dispersed to the four corners of the earth, and they will return. Obviously, the earth is round. Uh, it should be obvious. Some dispute that, but it is. And that means it doesn't have corners. So the phrase is euphemism. It simply means every part of the earth. All right. So in other words, what he's confirming here is that the regathering that initiates the kingdom, the regathering out of gloom and darkness that starts the kingdom, that regathering is a complete return of all who are Jewish anywhere on the earth into the kingdom, lands of Israel. But you notice he also said in Isaiah, it said this is the second time. I'll read that again for you if you haven't opened up your Bible there. In Isaiah eleven eleven, it says, Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand the remnant of his people. So in Isaiah we're learning that this regathering that starts the kingdom is a second worldwide regathering of Israel. Now, we know that even since this time in Babylon, even since the the dispersion of Babylon, there have been multiple minor regatherings of Israel, right? They had the first one 70 years later, and then they were dispersed at different points in time after that, and then more would come back into the land. They were dispersed in AD 70, and now they've started to come back in the land, right? So we know we've had this pattern of in and out off and on for years. But in every prior regathering... Uh, like the one that followed after the exile, it was limited in range and it was limited in number. It did not involve Jews from every part of the earth and it did not involve all Jews. So none of those earlier minor regatherings qualify. Those are not mentioned in the Bible. 
In other words, none of those minor regatherings have any prophetic significance. The only ones that do are the ones that meet the definition of what Isaiah gave us, which is a worldwide gathering. And according to Scripture, there are two worldwide regatherings of Jews into their land. The one that we've studied so far is the one that ends tribulation and gets us into the kingdom. And what Isaiah says is that there's also one that comes at the beginning of tribulation or leading into tribulation. That regathering has already started. The worldwide regathering of Jews into the land, the first time this has ever happened, since what we're studying now in Ezekiel, since the Babylonian attack on Jerusalem, the first time we can say that Jews from all over the world are moving to the same place on earth, back to Jerusalem and to to Israel, generally started at the end of the 19th century. Before that, it had never happened before. And it continues, obviously, today. Ezekiel told us in an earlier chapter, in chapter 20, that this regathering would happen. And he told us why it would happen. I'll read that again for you. Ezekiel 20, verse 33. He says, As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered. And with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. As I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. That's the promise for the first worldwide regathering. Unlike the second one, which we just studied, the second one led into the kingdom. The second one led to having a shepherd show up and care for the lambs. You know, it was a very tender kind of of regathering, right? This one doesn't sound so good. This one has wrath, judgment, face-to-face, you know, mighty hands and all the rest. What he's promising here is to bring Israel back into their land from the worldwide scattering in preparation for their judgment in tribulation. So this is a gathering for the purpose of putting Israel through the judgments of tribulation from within their land in anticipation of what will happen in the kingdom. So there is a first regathering, which we are seeing now, which is our sign that tribulation is soon to happen. Soon is relative, but in some sense soon. And as it concludes, as that seven-year period concludes, and we get ready for the kingdom to follow, then at the very end of the tribulation, because of the turmoil of it, and the way it has its own effect on dispersing people, there will be need again for yet another regathering in preparation for the kingdom. Because all Jews live in Israel in the kingdom. That is their land. And we know that, uh, you know, as tribulation ensues, we know that some get sent to Petra, we know that some are in the land of Israel, some are probably outside the land, that's the implication. And so at the second coming, you hear this. In Matthew twenty four twenty nine, Jesus talking about his second coming, we hear this. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of heaven will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, or you might say from the four corners, from one end of the sky to the other. So in that summary from Matthew, from the Olivet Discourse, Jesus says that there will be a moment at his return when those that are not in the land must be gathered up because now's the time for the kingdom and the angels are essentially gathering them. We don't know how that's going to work. We don't know what it looks like. And maybe it won't be literally supernatural. Maybe the angels are making it happen behind the scenes, but there's some more natural method. It doesn't matter. The point is they get there. 
as a point of getting ready for the kingdom. So what that tells us is the present day regathering that we're watching now is a warm-up act for the event that we're studying in Ezekiel 34. The Ezekiel 34 regathering is the one at the end of tribulation, the one that Jesus just described in Matthew 24. The one we're seeing today is the first regathering which is necessary to initiate tribulation. It's not what triggers it, obviously, but it's what gets us ready for it. And the Lord says to the leaders of Israel, who have been misbehaving, that there will be an accounting for them as this process goes on. We're almost done here, verse 17. It says, As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will judge between one sheep and another, between the rams and the male goats. Is it too slight a thing for you that you should feed in the good pasture, that you must tread down with your feet the rest of the pasture? Or that you should drink of the clear waters, that you must foul the rest with your feet? As for my flock, they must eat what you tread down with your feet and drink what you foul with your feet. Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I, even I, will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Because you push with side and with shoulder and thrust at all the weak with your horns until you have scattered them abroad, therefore I will deliver my flock and they will no longer be a prey and I will judge between one sheep and another. All right, notice he says that even within the sheep there will be a judgment. But it's really a judgment between sheep and goats. You notice that in verse 17? Between the rams and the male goats. He's saying he's going to be judging as he returns and does this regathering. Remember, this whole context here is which of the two regatherings? The second one. The one that ends tribulation. The one that initiates the kingdom. He's just said, when I come back, I'm going to gather all my sheep. And then he puts a little caveat, little asterisk next to that. And he says, oh, but there will be some in that group who I will not be gathering. I will not gather the fat ones that have been taking advantage of all the weak ones. I will not be gathering the leaders who thought they were doing service to me, but they were just serving themselves within God's flock. He says in verse 18, they have been eating in the pasture and drinking from the best, but then they foul it in a way that the others can't enjoy it. We don't know exactly what kinds of things that refers to, but we get the point, right? It's all about them, not about the sheep. And this accounting happens at his second coming. Does that remind you of anything from Matthew 25 also? When Jesus describes his second coming, he says this in Matthew twenty-five thirty-one. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, those are the ones who gather the elect from the four corners, right? Then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as the shepherd, notice, as the shepherd separates sheep from goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. We've covered this, I know, from Matthew. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Skipping down to verse 41, he says, Those on his left, he says, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. What's the cause for their de- condemnation? Well, in summary, he says, I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. Now take that in the context of Ezekiel 34. You ate the best and you gave nothing else to anybody else. So in other words, take the sheep metaphor, the goat metaphor, and just keep playing it out. He's saying to those within Israel in the tribulation, you said you were leaders of my people. You took advantage of them even in the midst of the turmoil. You were not truly mine. You were just taking advantage of the sheep. You were corrupt leaders. This corrupt leadership pattern continues in Israel all the way to the end of tribulation. And so he says, as I come, I'm going to make a distinction between who are my sheep and who are not. And it's on the basis of how you cared for my people because that was your role. And it reveals your heart that you didn't care for my people. Now look how easily when you take Matthew 25 out of context and furthermore don't understand its connection to Old Testament prophecy, you run into that and you think, well, gee, if I'm not in the soup kitchen, God may not save me. 
You see how bizarrely out of context that is? But we look at that and we say, well, I'm supposed to feed and I'm supposed to visit people in prison and that's how God will know I love Him. Well, it's not wrong to do those things, but that's not the context here. The context is end of tribulation, Jewish people misled by their leadership, God fulfilling a prophecy He gave through Ezekiel. This is very specific kinds of stuff we're talking about here. And he's making the point when he says, as a shepherd separates his sheep from goats, to draw your mind back to Ezekiel 34. All right? Finally, and we are ending on this, the Lord puts an end to improper leadership forever. Verse 23, he says, Then I will set over them, then indicating now after tribulation, then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them, and he will feed them himself, and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them, and I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make a covenant of peace with them, and eliminate harmful beasts from the land, so that they may live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. I will, there's something we all want to do, sleep in the woods. And I will make them and the places around my hill a blessing. And I will cause showers to come down in their seas, and there will be showers of blessing. Also the trees of the field will yield its fruit, and the earth will yield its increase, and they will be secure on their land. Then they will know that I am the Lord, when I have broken the bars of their yoke, and have delivered them from the hand of those who enslaved them. They will no longer be prey to the nations, and the beasts of the earth will not devour them, but they will live securely, and no one will make them afraid. I will establish for them a renowned planting place, and they will not again be victims of famine in the land. They will not endure the insults of the nations anymore. Then they will know that I, the Lord, their God, am with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God. As for you, my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, you are men, and I am your God, declares the Lord God. Most of this is self-explanatory, right? This is the glory and the blessing of the kingdom. There's two things in particular you need to note. First of all, he says their shepherd will be David. That is not a reference to Jesus. Because in literal hermeneutic, there's no evidence here that we're talking about the metaphoric David, that is, the fulfillment of David. This is a literal reference to King David. Resurrected again, just as we will be. Living in Israel again, just as we will be. And he gets his old job back. Because he's been promised that in the Davidic covenant. Notice in verse 24, he's called the prince over the people of God, and I will be their God, he says. So the prince is not I. The prince is not God. There is a distinction being made there. And the fact that he's called prince and not king is is similar to what we saw with the king of Tyre versus prince of Tyre. The king is the spiritual head. The prince is the human head. In this case, David is part of the government that Jesus establishes to rule in the kingdom. And he has a high role, obviously. He leads all of the nation of Israel in the way that he did before. But now in a perfect life, glorified, without sin, doing what's right as a shepherd would, and clearly under the command of Jesus, who has all authority on earth. But then it goes to step deeper. Furthermore, the Lord says in verse 25, uh, he will make a covenant of peace with him. Now notice that. That is a promise of another covenant. This is not the new covenant. That's also coming, but this isn't a different covenant. This is another covenant God is promising he will initiate with Israel in the kingdom. You could call it the kingdom covenant if you want. He calls it a covenant of peace. And the result of that covenant is, it's a suzerainty covenant that doesn't appear to be any conditions on it. It's just God granting something that it will result in the people having peace and security in their land without exception. Down to the point that the animals themselves will not bother the people, which is in keeping with what Isaiah says when he says the, the wolf will lay down with the lamb and so on. Right? It's a step of return back toward the state of existence in the Garden of Eden. It's not fully back, but it's getting there so that we don't have predator-prey relationships anymore. We don't have worries over animals trying to attack us. 
He goes on, he says they're never going to have famine because they're always going to get rain. Famine was always a sign of God's judgment. Well, no judgment, no famine. The plants will always produce abundantly. This is also moving us back from the curse on the land that God gave to Adam in the garden. Right? Not going to have trouble now growing things like we used to. If you like the garden, it's going to be great. They're not going to be victims or they're not going to be oppressed. They're not going to have people insulting them even anymore. In other words, they as a nation will finally find themselves in that state of peaceful existence and superiority over all of the nations, which you know, Israel has longed for, certainly, and never had. In the end, because of all of that, because of the covenant, because of David, because of the Lord in, in his uh, glory, the people will know that he is the Lord and they are his people. And the shepherd will finally be caring for them. That's just a taste of the glory that we're going to see in this book. That's just the beginning of it. But it starts with that leadership role. From there, everything else comes. Okay, so we'll stop there. We kind of went a little long. Sorry, I just didn't want to end right before that last section because it was uh, obviously tied to the leadership topic. We'll get back to chapter 35 next week and into a new topic. All right, let's pray. Father, just a a brief acknowledgement of your power and your glory and your word, Uh, just how awesome your promises are, how close we are. Father, it's just uh, the more we study, the more... We long to see these things. Thank you, Lord, that you have them prepared and and ready for us in a day to come. And, uh, Father, as we consider what you're about to do in the difficulties of this world that precede the glory, uh, I pray, Father, that you would give us the, the privilege to rescue a few out of it by our influence through the work of the Spirit. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.